Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Our focus today is on a critically important issue in healthcare, and that issue is patient suffering. And uh, I would also add to that caregiver suffering. And uh, we are incredibly fortunate to have a guest on the show today who is really quite expert in this uh, arena, Christy Dempsey. Uh, Christy uh, is the Chief Nursing Officer for Prescani Associates and responsible for providing clinical guidance to help clients transform the patient and caregiver experience. Um, she's created a model called Compassionate Connected Care. Uh, Christy uh, is a highly experienced registered nurse over three decades of healthcare experience. She speaks and publishes regularly on the topic of nursing, perioperative and emergency services management, patient flow, medical practice operations, supply chain and materials management, and physician hospital collaboration. She's uh, served on the faculty for the Missouri State University Department of Nursing. She holds a master's in both business and nursing. Uh, she's also a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing. She is uh, currently also pursuing her doctorate in nursing practice. Christy recently published a book this past November. Uh, the book is called The Antidote to Suffering, How Compassionate Connected Care Can Improve Safety, Quality, and Experience. Christy, uh, I am so, so glad to be talking with you today. How are you? Thank you, Zeb. I'm great. I'm great and happy to be here. Thank you. Well, you know, Christy, um, as I was preparing for this uh, dialogue, I, uh, I I realized that I, I think you are the first nurse uh, that I have interviewed on this podcast series in the past few months. So uh, I'm really excited to do that. I'm really glad that's finally happened. Very good. I am, too. And hopefully I won't be the last. <laughs> you know what? I had a feeling you were going to say something like that. <laughs> Um, well, you know, I just want to say, first of all, congratulations on the publication of the book. I, I read it cover to cover. And, um, it, you know, I, I have to say I've spent, as you know, I've spent years uh, working on this issue going back into the 1990s. I've been reading about this issue, studying this issue. Um, and I still found your book to be incredibly informative, so relevant. Um, and I have to say it was really, really moving. Um, I, I felt like I got to know you through the book. And, um, you know, it was clear that this was not only professionally informed with all your in-depth experiences over decades, but it was also a deeply personal journey for you. And, and I felt like you took us on that journey. So, so very, very grateful for you having written this book. And I would highly recommend it to anyone who has anything to do with patient care. Oh, thank you. It was definitely a labor of love. Yeah, oh, that came that came through. So, so could you tell us? Um, you, you've been in in healthcare for, for for obviously many years. What was the moment, the event that really tipped you to understand suffering? Um, you know, uh, it was there was there a story? Was there a, a situation that that finally said, "Oh my God, I, I I can't believe I haven't understood this before in this way, and now I get it." 
Oh, definitely. So, um, you know, when at Press Ganey, we started talking about suffering in around 2012, 2013. My colleague, uh, Dr. Deirdre Mylod, started talking about suffering. And I pushed back uh, because as a nurse, you don't want to talk about suffering. If you, if you tell me that my patient is suffering, I feel like I'm not doing something. I feel guilty. And so nurses don't want to talk about suffering. We want to talk about uh, care and, and empathy. And, and so I, I pushed back until I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2013. And I became a patient. And it completely changed everything. And I realized at that time that it is suffering. Patients do suffer. And so that, that's what changed it for me. And I, and then certainly, uh, as I, as I talk about later, uh, other experiences that I had, uh, just reinforced that, that there is suffering in healthcare. And, and we, we suffer in two different ways through inherent suffering. So just the diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer alone causes suffering that can't be eliminated, can be mitigated, but not eliminated. But then there's an awful lot of avoidable suffering that we actually impose on the people who come to us for care. When I had to wait for results, hmm. when um, I didn't get the, the pain medication before my sentinel node biopsy, when um, I didn't get uh, the people came into my room after surgery and didn't even introduce themselves to me in a top 100 hospital. So those are things that cause suffering every day in healthcare, and they are totally avoidable. And so that's, that was really the tipping point for me. Mm -hmm. And, and so as you look back, so, so you, you, you know, it, this is kind of interesting to me, I have to say, you know, here you are and, and, and so many of us are in healthcare and we, we are trying to do our job, as you said, with nurses, they want to talk about, you know, doing their job about, about empathy and caring and all that. But it was only when you really experienced it as a patient and, you know, that it was, it just sort of popped for you and, and you got it. Um, what were there, as you looked back and, and as you think about all the patients you've taken care of, did you begin to kind of rewind the stories and say, oh my God, you know, here was a patient who was suffering and I didn't get it. Um, and I, and, and, or were there times where you, you know, you look back and said, oh yeah, I did get it. And I helped them. I mean, can you think in your own, in your own experience as a, as a caregiver, professional caregiver? Absolutely. So um, I remember, and I, I chronicle this in the book as well, I remember uh, as a fairly new nurse, two, three years on the job, I was working the night shift and, on a neuro unit. And I went into the room of a 30-ish year old woman, and she had had a, a horrible headache and had gone unconscious. And when they brought her to the hospital and did the angiogram, they found an aneurysm. And so that night was the night before surgery. And so I went in and she wasn't able to sleep and she just needed to talk. And as she talked, she was um, really concerned about her her children and her husband and and all of the things that that she had planned and and I I you know I remember you know saying you know something you know well it it'll all be okay or whatever mm -hmm. um and and 
the next day she died on the table. And I think back now to that, and I think she was truly suffering that night. She was scared, and she didn't know what was going to happen to her or to her family. And, you know, I I didn't equate that at the time to suffering, but she was absolutely suffering. And what could I have done? Could I have spent just a few more minutes with her and and just listened Mm -hmm. Um, as she talked about what was wrong and what she was afraid of. And so, so there are times like that. Um, you know, I remember other times that, um, I had patients who were afraid going into surgery and I was able to talk to them in the, just in the holding room and make sure that they knew that we were going to take good care of them and that we were going to be with them the whole time. And, and you could see them visibly relax. So I, I think little things like that, we don't, we don't tend to think about those little things as alleviating suffering, but they absolutely do and completely change the experience, not only for the patient, but also for the people taking care of them. So I'm going to, I'm going to resist for the moment, diving into your compassionate uh, care, you know, your, your compassionate care model and, uh, because I, I want to, I still want to understand a little bit more about this issue of suffering, uh, you know, because I, I have, a, a, you know, I have a feeling or suspicion that a lot of folks who are listening to this are, are kind of asking the question, just like you did, you know, when your colleagues said, you know, we, we need to start to look at this, you push back. Um, so what is there you, you you experienced it you got it viscerally as a patient I, I know that you've experienced the same thing through reading your book with family members and and um, so but but from a from a professional side uh, and 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 now you're you're obviously very deeply into metrics and have been is there a way that you have a more formal definition of suffering or uh, quantify suffering how do you how do you measure this, if, if you can? And, and I think we can. Now, I, I think we have to use um, different metrics uh, because suffering is, is, is subjective. But so is the patient experience survey. Uh, both HCAPs and what we use at Prescani. Those are uh, the patient is talking about their perception of the care they received. And so when we started talking about suffering, we realized that we already had measures so that the survey can tell us about the, the needs that those patients had that were either met or not met. And we can use those metrics as a proxy for suffering. And similarly, for people who take care of patients, we can look at things like engagement surveys and their needs as met or not met as a proxy for suffering. So when you think about it that way, we can actually measure suffering. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you, you, you're you using these proxies to measure it. How how are we doing uh, across the country? Mm -hmm. I mean, are we are we improving it from your estimation, looking at these, these, these proxy metrics, are we staying the same? Are we getting worse? What's, what's, what's happening in, in, in the state of affairs? I think we're getting better, but we need to still keep, keep getting better. Um, it, you know, I think we need to get to a, to the point where we can truly understand 
the, the different needs of different patient populations. For example, um, we may have a congestive heart failure patient and a pneumonia patient on the same unit taken care of by the same doctors and the same nurses. And yet they experience care differently. When we, when we segment down to that diagnostic level, we see that congestive heart failure patients, as opposed to their medicine cohorts like pneumonia, need more help toileting, and they need a prompter response to call lights, and they need more information about how to stay out of the hospital and more information about their drugs and their side effects. And in order to truly make the, the difference that we need to make, and reduce that suffering, we have to understand the individual needs of patients and how we meet those needs best. We can segment by age and by gender and by ethnicity and by education and by diagnostic level, and we need to do that. We need to understand the needs that each of our patients have and how to address those needs. Because if you knew that those congestive heart failure patients needed prompter response to call lights and more help toileting, hopefully that would change the way you took care of your congestive heart failure patients just a little bit. Wow. That's, you know, I, I, I don't recall you actually mentioning this in the book. And that's this is kind of the first time I've heard this, this sort of segmentation of suffering and, and realizing that different people with different backgrounds and demographics and different conditions will have different um, susceptibilities to suffering. And knowing that we could actually uh, be prepared proactively to make sure that we fill in those gaps um, and not and not just treat everyone as if they're the same from this perspective of, of preventing suffering and mitigating it. That's really, that's fascinating. I've never, ever heard that before. Is that, is that commonly known or is that something you're working on now? I, I think it, it both. Um, we've been talking about that for some time and continue to work on that. It is, it is something that we, we can do now because if you don't do that, mm-hmm. then you are simply throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. You're doing, you're improving on things that other people have improved. And so you think that maybe it'll work for your organization too, rather than understanding your specific patient populations and what their specific needs are. So what, what are, you just, you mentioned a couple, but what are some ways that, and I'm trying to, again, paint a picture of suffering. And one of the ways I, I think that can help illustrate it is what are some uh, interventions that you instruct um, uh, providers at the front lines of care that they can do to prevent suffering? So, you know, when I talk about, and, and I'm sure we'll get more into the compassionate connected care framework, but when I, when I asked people, both clinicians and non-clinicians and patients to tell me what compassionate connected care looked like, uh, to give me a very specific image, and then I developed an affinity diagram for, to tease out those specific themes that were important. One of the, the, the most important themes was that real caring transcends the medical diagnosis. And, it, you know, the, the best example I can give is when I was in the hospital after my mastectomy, I was the mastectomy in 902. And so, so often we, we, we take away all of our patients' control. 
we we call them by their room number or their doctor's name or their procedure so they lose their identity as well and when i talk about that nobody really disagrees with me but the the common complaint is I don't have time to spend 10 or 15 minutes with every patient. I have too much to do. I have too many patients. I can't do it. And so they immediately think that they don't have time to make a connection. And so I often do a demonstration. And I have done this demonstration thousands of times, not only as a demonstration, but also in practice. And I can show that it only takes 56 seconds to make a connection with a patient. And that connection is simply understanding something about that person that has nothing to do with the reason they're in care. So I see you have flowers on the windowsill. Who sent you those flowers? Oh, I see you have a picture of your daughter. Tell me about your daughter. Oh, when you're not in the hospital, what do you like to do? And the fact is I'm controlling the conversation. And so when I'm ready to wrap it up, I say something like, that is so interesting and I want to talk some more about that. I'm going to be back in your room about every hour and I want to talk some more about that. In the meantime, I'm going to do an assessment. I'm going to ask you lots of questions. I want you to ask any questions that you have because we're in this together and we're done. And I, like I said, I have done that thousands of times. That conversation has never taken more than two minutes and the connection happens on average in 56 seconds. So that is something that every single caregiver, every single person with a face to the patient can do. Well, I, I, that would be, uh, I mean, if people did that, I think that alone would uh, be a transformative intervention. Um, that's fantastic. You, you know, you, you mentioned the issue of time and uh, I know in the in in your book you you explain um, that there are factors that are actually making it harder to connect with patients and and to recognize and appreciate and do something about the suffering. Do you could, could you say a little bit more about what, what what's making it harder and harder as med medicine advances? Because you know people talk about the good old days of medicine, and I'm not sure if they were good or not um, or, or better, but. Um, but things are changing and, and it seems like it is harder to connect uh, to another person on, on that kind of level that you were just talking about. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think there are several things, but primarily I don't think we're teaching people how to do it anymore. And I, you know, it always makes me feel old to say this, but 35 years ago when I went to nursing school, you know, we, we started IVs on each other and we gave each other shots and we did bed baths and back rubs and head to toe assessments on each other and on people because simulators didn't exist at that point. And so we understood then when we went into our clinical practice, what it felt like <laughs> and you know, those things now are done on high fidelity mannequins, which are very lifelike. But I'll give you a great example. My colleague, Amy Cowperthwaite at the University of Delaware, uh, is, is the director of their simulation program for the nursing school. And she was talking about uh, one day she was working on code blue algorithms with her nursing students with the mannequins, the high fidelity mannequins. And the, the patient, the mannequin, died in the algorithm. 
And the nursing student slammed her hands down on the patient's, the mannequin's chest, said, you're dead, clapped her hands as if to say, I'm done. And Amy was horrified. And, but, but you see, we're not teaching people how to connect anymore. And when you think about today's world, we don't even connect with each other. We talk on the, the, the cell phone. We, we text. We email. And, and so, it, which would be fine if all of our patients did that too, but they don't. So our, our students, and I recognized this when I was teaching, our students are fabulous with simulation and they are wonderful at electronic documentation and better with social media than I will ever be. But when you sit them across the bed from an 80 year old sick person, they don't know how to connect. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of the problem. Then we have the issue of, of reimbursement. And, you know, we are, we are seeing that patient experience is, is, a, is a key part of the, the overall value-based purchasing reimbursement. But, you know, just a few years ago, 70% of value-based purchasing scores were clinical measures process measures. And so I remember going to CEOs and talking with them and they would say, you know what? We are focused on clinical excellence. That's where the, that's where we have to be. That's where the bottom line is going to be. And if we can be nice in the process, great. But now we're coming to the point where we understand that this is not about being nice. And this is not about making people happy. You know, nobody, no patient is really happy about being in care. And, you know, the family members are not happy about waiting in the waiting room. And there aren't any rides in the hospital. So it's hard to make it a theme park experience. People don't take off for vacation to check into the hospital. So I think that we have to get past this whole, you know, let's, let's delight them or give them a wow experience. That's not what we're talking about. And when you think about the, the, the drivers of things like likelihood to recommend or loyalty, it's about feeling safe. Yep. It's not about making me safe. We have to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to make sure that our processes and our people are, are, are educated and, and, and in line to provide the safest care possible. But you may be doing a great job in keeping me from falling or keeping me from getting a pressure injury. But if I don't think you know me mm-hmm. or my name or what what is important to me, then I don't trust you. And so I'm not going to have a good experience. Yeah. I, I just want to say, uh, you know, uh, amen to what you said. I, I, I think you're spot on. My I'll, I'll, I'll take it from my experience as a patient and family member of patients that the biggest concern uh, is, again, not the wow experience in the hospital. You're, you're in a different situation. You're, 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 not, you're not in Disney. I mean, this is serious stuff and you're not feeling well and you're scared and you're nervous and, you know, serious things are happening to you that could, you know, cause pain and discomfort and uh, disfiguration and be permanent and impact your life permanently um, in very, very serious ways, like your mobility and your cognition. So this is a serious situation. Um, It's a life and death situation. 
And the biggest concern, again, besides the, you know, the, the quality of the work and the safety of the actual clinical medical work is, do I feel like I'm being treated with respect and dignity? Do I feel like I'm just another piece of meat, um, you know, on a table or like I'm a human being with a soul? And those are the kinds of comments I hear both positive and negative from patients, from my own family members, and quite honestly, my own experience um, when I've uh, you know been in hospital too. And so it, it's um, I, I think you really are hitting upon a very, very, you know, very important issue here. Um, and, um, you know, I do want to say one thing, because you do talk about this in your book, and there's no question people who are listening to this, lots of them are, are caregivers, caregivers themselves. You make it very, very clear that this is not about blaming providers and caregivers, that actually you're very, very focused and have been in throughout your career and, and through this work on supporting the caregivers because they're suffering as well. And so I just want to give you an opportunity to say something about that. And, and in particular, there was this one story of this young nurse, Kylie, who, who you talked about in the book. And um, for me, it was a great example of, of the fact that if we're going to improve this issue of, of patient suffering, we, we probably need to do something about the caregivers themselves as well. Right. Well, you know, I had thought all along that, uh, you know, as we were looking at the, the patient suffering model and the the met and unmet needs, you know, that, that patients are not the only ones who suffer. And this is a very challenging time in healthcare. And, and so I began to, to work with, with my colleagues and, and talk about the caregiver suffering. And by caregiver, I'm not talking about the family at home. I'm talking about the nurses and the doctors and the therapists that, that all have a hand in taking care of our patients. They're suffering too. And we can argue, and we have, believe me, about whether or not the word suffering is the right word. And, you know, they knew what they were getting into when they got into this business. But, you know, call it stress, call it distress, call it challenge, call it whatever you want. But it is there, there are, there are issues and there is inherent stress and distress, just like there is for a patient. And there is avoidable stress and distress. So I think it was Hoschild who talked about emotional labor and, uh, you know, it, it, there is a lot of emotional labor in what we do in healthcare. We are required to turn on emotions that we don't necessarily feel and turn off emotions that we do in the, the examples that I like to give. So, you know, most of us who have ever taken care of a patient know what a code brown is. And so to your listeners, I will say, if you don't know what it is, ask a nurse. But, you know, the, 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 fact is it's disgusting. It's awful. You walk in the room and the smell hits you in the face and you think, oh my God, I don't have time for this. I got to clean up this patient and I've got too much other stuff to do. I can't, but you can't show that. You have to turn that emotion off so that you are, you allow your patient to preserve dignity. Right. And then there are times where you walk into an oncology patient's room and the patient is terminal and and you have to turn on optimism when that's the last thing you feel. That's emotional labor and our healthcare providers have to deal with that every day. And there are a couple of ways that we deal with it. We deal with it through surface acting, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's pretending, it's faking it, it's, um, it's frankly scripting it. Um, which comes across as scripted to the patient. And, and we deal with it then also through deep acting. 
And deep acting is understanding what somebody else is going through and being able to communicate that understanding back to them, which is the definition of empathy. Mm. And people think that it's the deep acting that causes compassion fatigue and burnout, but it's not. It's the constant surface acting and the, the lack of meaning and the lack of joy in what they do. And so I think we have to think about that. And we have to, to understand not only what causes burnout, but also, and more importantly, what drives resilience. Mm. The ability to bounce back, not just after the first setback, but after the eighth setback. And so those are things that we're working on now. For Kylie, um, that, that I'm going to have to talk about my son-in-law a little bit to understand what Kylie meant to us. So Kylie um, was my son-in-law's nurse. My, uh, uh, exactly three years ago today, my 30-year-old son-in-law police officer was shot in the head in the line of duty. Uh, and he has half of the bullet in the back of his brain and the other half fragmented in his left frontal lobe. And when we got to the hospital, the, they had taken Aaron into surgery and the neurosurgeon came out and took my daughter's hands and said, we've taken off half his skull to let his brain swell. He's lost his eye. We um, have put him in a medically induced coma and best case scenario, he'll never speak again and he'll have limited use of his right side. And at the time, my grandson was three and my granddaughter was seven months old. And it was the worst time in our lives. And we had no idea what the future would hold. As a mother, I can tell you that all the dreams and plans that I had for my daughter were in peril. She was just trying to keep things together. My husband, who had convinced Aaron to be a police officer, was consumed with guilt. It was just a terrible, terrible time. And Kylie was Aaron's nurse in the ICU. And she made all the difference. She helped navigate all the different specialties taking care of Aaron. And she helped, got the child life specialists involved um, to let the kids see daddy in the ICU. But one thing that Kylie did that I will never forget, Kylie recognized that Aaron had us. He had a regular family, but he also had a law enforcement family and they were everywhere in the hospital and they needed to see him. And he needed to somehow know that they were there. But it was against the rules because they weren't family. But she let him in anyway. And what that said to me was that Kylie recognized Aaron for Aaron and not the gunshot wound in bed four. And that made such a difference to me. And so as, as Aaron transitioned to the step-down unit and then to rehab, I actually followed Kylie's career. I, I, I kept in touch with her. And about a year later, give or take, I got a text from her on, or a, a post on Facebook. And she said, after working three jobs, driving more miles than I can count, being away from my husband more than I ever want to be, I am officially retiring from nursing. 
And Kylie wasn't even 30 years old. And my heart just broke for all the patients that she would have taken care of because she was amazing. And unfortunately, she is not unique. And we have, we have nurses who are working 12-hour shifts, which are not really 12-hour shifts. They're really 14 or 15-hour shifts. And they're working back-to-back 13 or 14-hour shifts. And they're getting no sleep. And, and they say, oh, that's okay. I've got four days off unless we're calling them every day saying, can you work, can you work, can you work? Or they're working down the street at another full-time job where they're working 13 or 14-hour shifts to make ends meet. And so that is suffering. And we have to fix that. You know, as I'm, I'm listening to you, and, and when you talked about Kylie in the book, it, it, it did kind of break my heart to hear that, you know, after, in such a young age and so early on in her career that she just burned out and, and left. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, for me, you are reframing this issue because for sure there are interventions uh, that you and others have developed, you know, like team huddles and interdisciplinary rounding and, you know, improving shift reports and all the other, you know, interventions you talked about that can alleviate the suffering, understanding specific uh, um, uh, suffering in, in certain patients and conditions. But if we don't focus on this issue uh, of resilience in our caregivers, um, I, I, I think that we're missing a big part of it. And so that's something I hadn't, I hadn't really, really realized until you, you know, you actually quite now until, until you, you started saying what you said a few minutes ago, it just, it's, it's bigger than I actually thought. This issue of burnout has, has, is much more important. It's actually much more about resilience and whatever techniques and tools and, um, practices we need to, to get to these frontline caregivers, it seems like that's a big hole. Um, is that what you're seeing out there? Is Because I'm curious about this. I mean, yes. I think it's, yes. you, you are seeing that, yeah. Yes. So, so, you know, there's, and we're working a lot on this right now, understanding what drives resilience. And, and so there is, you know, inherent um, reward, in what we do, you know, we, it's a calling. It's it's something we find meaning in. But there's also inherent distress. That calling means that we're uh, on call all the time. That we sometimes have moral dilemmas. Then there is an in, in, inherent or added reward. Things like our compensation or um, our our conferences. But then there's also added stress and distress with the EMR dysfunction or the dysfunction in our, our teams or our systems. And, and if you think about this as kind of a seesaw where you have inherent um, reward and added reward on one side and you have inherent distress and added distress on the other, think of resilience as that fulcrum mm-hmm. and you want that fulcrum to make sure that you always tip to the left. So that means we're going to have to get rid of some of the added stress and distress, or we're going to have to make sure that the added reward and inherent reward offset that stress and distress. And so those are the things that we're looking at now. When you think about it that way, it makes a little more sense in how you build resilience. I really love that model. That's a great picture. Um, of, of understanding resilience and also understanding how to do something about it 
to, as you say, tip it in favor of resilience over burnout. And I want to give credit where credit is due. That is Dr. Dibber Mylod and Tom Lee's model. So um, they they have done a lot of work on that, and it makes a lot of sense. And we're going to be focused very much on that uh, in the coming year. That's great. So I, I want to I want to definitely now get to your um, model of compassionate connected care, and I have to say that what I really um, uh, you know, appreciate about your model is, and admire about it is that you 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 pointed out a few things which are really important. That and I don't want to I don't want to steal your thunder here, but I just want to I just want to kind of punctuate these. That for me, what 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 sort of hit me as I read through your book and through these chapters on the compassionate connected care model. Number one, the realization that you had that it wasn't enough just to focus on focus on compassion that this was a, not just a, you know, individual to individual situation, you know, caregiver patient, this actually was um, a, a systems situation. And that's where the word connected comes in, that it affected the team. And you have a whole chapter on that. What's a compassionate connected care team? It was the hospital. What's a compassionate connected care hospital? Um, and it was the larger system of healthcare. And for me, that that model, that, that realization and the model you built on it is so uh, important. And I, I definitely want you to speak to that. And, and the other thing that hit me about it too, and I don't, I don't know if you you punctuate this as much, but maybe you do, is that leadership has to be engaged. This cannot be something where they say, okay, we're going to hire a consultant, go down to the floors in the hospital and work your thing. It really has to, it has to be authentic um, and, and actualized at that leadership, senior leadership level as well. So for me, those were the two things that struck me about your model. But I, I, you know, so I, I want you to tell us about the model and, and the components of it and, and whatever you think is important for us to know about. Very good. Yes, I'm happy to do that. So we, we, we started talking about suffering. And then we started talking about using the surveys as a way to measure suffering, as a proxy for suffering. And the more I thought about it, and certainly having gone through the breast cancer um, journey, it's not enough to talk about it, and it's not enough to measure it. You have to do something about it. And so I I looked at a lot of of the literature. I, I talked to a lot of people. And what it came down to is, you know, you may give the best clinical care in the world, but if it's there's no compassion there, it's not enough. And you may be the compa- most compassionate person there is, but if you don't give good clinical care, that's not enough. It's the connection between compassion and clinical care and the connection that we have with each other and our patients that matters. So that's where the the compassionate connected care framework came from. And and it said that the patient experience is clinical, connecting clinical excellence with outcomes, because you may think you're a great clinician, but if you don't have the outcomes to show for it, especially now, it doesn't matter. And it's operational, connecting efficiency with quality. Because you may have the best quality on the planet, but if it costs you 10 times more to deliver it because you're inefficient, you're going to close your doors. It's behavioral, connecting engagement with action, because the people who are engaged demonstrate the behaviors you want them to demonstrate. And I use this a lot, this equation. If 90% of your people 
demonstrate 90% of the behaviors you want them to 90% of the time, you feel like you're doing pretty well. 90% is a low, hey, you're doing okay. But if you do the math, that puts you at 73%, which the last time I looked, put you at a low C in anybody's grade book, and it puts you at the 10th percentile in the database. The fact is, when it comes to behaviors, it's 100% of the people demonstrating 100% of the behaviors 100% of the time, and you don't get credit for anything less, and you shouldn't, hmm. because none of us wants to be part of that 10%. But then underpinning everything, which gets to the leadership issue, is your culture, which connects your mission, vision, and values with engagement of the people who work there, because your mission is why you exist. And your vision is where you're going and your values are how you're going to get there. And unless everybody in the organization understands where they fit within that mission, vision and values and how everything, your strategic plan, your budget, your meetings, your huddles, everything flows from and back to that mission, vision and values. You don't have a shared purpose. Everybody's trying to do the right thing, but often it's at cross purposes. That is your shared purpose. It's not a plaque on the way to the elevator. And leadership has to amplify that and walk the talk and model the behaviors and and assure that efficiency is balanced with quality and that outcomes are what they should be. That is leadership's job. So is there is there somewhere you've been in the country where you would say they are they are kind of your model of what compassionate connected care would look like? What is what does it look like? Do you have a story of a of that? So uh, I, I'll give you a couple. Um, I, uh, I, when I was wearing my consulting hat before I became the chief nursing officer, um, I, I always would, would go into an organization. I would say, show me two units that are stars and two units that are not so much. And I could almost always tell you that the reason those units were stars is because they had excellent leadership. Their leaders were passionate and engaged and participative and excited. And so in, in one unit uh, that I was on in, in at Henry Ford, uh, it was a cardiac unit and they were doing well. And I went with the nurse manager and she was so excited. I went to a huddle and she was very involved and and their, all of their quality metrics were on a public display, it, it, on public display on a cork board in the hall. So their huddles were there. And the so everybody, visitors, patients, everybody could see how they were doing. And so I, I asked her how she did rounds, and she said that um, she did welcome rounds on every patient who was admitted between the time she left yesterday and the time she got there this morning, so that every patient on her unit was seen at least once by uh, the manager. But she didn't stop there. She, she went in to the patient with a thank you note. And on the inside of the thank you note, it says, thank you for choosing our unit. It's an honor to care for you. And on the other side, it said, um, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember exact verbiage, but it said, um, it, after discharge, you may receive a survey. And if you fill it out, we promise in bold letters to take action based on what you tell us. Hmm. But it didn't stop there. Every single person on the unit 
had signed that card, not just with their name, but with a little note, you know, feel better. Thanks for letting us care for you. um, Get well soon, whatever. And it looked for all the world like everybody did that right before she walked into the room. But what she did is she had everybody sign it and she took it down to the print shop and they printed it up on cardstock. Very cheap. She stapled her business card to it. She took it in with her to the welcome round so that that card was sitting on the bedside table the entire stay. The patient was looking at that every day. And and it was it was a way to say truly thank you. It's we, we are we are honored to care for you. So, and, and when you walked out in the hall on one side was the quality board, but on the other side, there was a mirror and around the mirror were all of the values, um, from the mission vision and values. And the, the tile at the top of the, the board was, are you living our values today? And it was just things like that, that, uh, she, she walked the talk. She sat down when she went in to, to talk to patients. She made the connection. She had obviously made a connection with all of her staff and that's why they did well. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's one. I, I was talking with a CNO. She's the former CNO of ThetaCare. Uh, she's at Wellstar now, Jill Caseworth. And when she was at ThetaCare, they had done some amazing work, obviously with lean. They're kind of on the, that they are at the top of the line when it comes to lean healthcare. But um, I, I asked her, I said, what are you doing around um, hourly rounding? And she said, you know, we did a lot of things that didn't work, but what we figured out was we, we had to make sure that people were competent before we could hold them accountable. And so every manager uh, developed their checklist and trained around the checklist. And then they had to watch every employee three times, three different times, do a round before they were checked off as competent. And then they could hold them accountable. But it wasn't just about looking at a report every month, whether or not they had done the round. They actually watched and observed um, their employees uh, kind of unannounced do these rounds to make sure that it was continuing. It's the Hawthorne effect, right? You, you people change their behavior based when you, when you're watching them. And so everybody got better. And so I think it's, it's things like that. It's, it's, it's the, the themes of compassionate connected care. We have to acknowledge that our patients are suffering and show them that we understand. We have to demonstrate body language. We, we have to sit down. We have to be able to physically close the distance with touch. That coordination of care is important. They understand that we're all talking to each other. That we recognize anxiety is suffering. And every patient waiting in a waiting room or on a bed or in a gurney is scared to death. And our job is to make them feel safe, not just keep them safe. And that, you know, autonomy can preserve dignity, giving choice. And, and again, that real caring transcends diagnosis, and it only takes 56 seconds to make that connection. Mm-hmm. So a uh, couple of examples. So how, how do you um, go into an organization? If an organization w- wants uh, to understand, learn, develop, uh, deploy your compassionate connected care model, with its, you know, different components. Um, and it, you know, hearing you speak, it's, it sounds like there, there are 
hundreds of things that that can be done and implemented. So how how do you go about doing that in an, in an organization that wants to make an improvement? Well, the and the, the uh, obviously we can help. Um, uh, looking at the data, you can look at the data in those buckets of compassionate connected care, so you know where to focus your efforts. One thing I think that I. I would caution organizations. Like you just said, there are hundreds of things that you can do, and that's true. And the problem is too many organizations try to do hundreds of things Mm. and that doesn't work. You know, you have to choose, you have to narrow it down and prioritize based on the data, three things. And then you have to make sure that those three things become part of your culture. They're cemented into the culture before you move on. Because what happens is, uh, you know, you, you, you're pushing the boulder up the mountain and you think you're, you're almost there. And so you take your eye off the ball and the boulder falls down and you have to start all over again. And we see that over and over and over again. And so sometimes I think you need, uh, you know, uh, uh, outside help. Mm-hmm. Um, you, need, you need fresh eyes to come in and, de- and and show you where there is true opportunity and where to prioritize your efforts. But I think that is an issue that there are so many things to do. And, and so people try to do too many things at one time and, mm-hmm. and they set unrealistic goals. You know, um, I've been in many organizations where you're starting out at the 30th percentile and somebody gives you a goal to be at the 90th percentile. And that's impossible. And so you, you can't get in it from the 30th percentile to the 90th percentile in a year. And, and so to, to set those kind of unrealistic expectations is demoralizing. The staff looks at that goal and says, screw this. There is no way we're gonna be able to do this. I'm not even gonna try. Mm. Yeah. And and so I, I think we have to be really careful about those two things. Yeah, those those are really helpful guidelines. What you know, it seems that this is inherently so important. But you know, I want to ask you a different question, which is a bit of a, kind of a hard line, bottom line question, which is there are lots of issues. Healthcare is becoming more competitive. Um, uh, financially much more challenging for hospital systems, uh, you know, as reimbursement changes. Why, why should this be an issue that is a high priority issue for the C-level suite, for the executives who are looking at, you know, yes, obviously, uh, and, and clinical executives who are looking at bottom line, clinical, operational, financial, you know, even regulatory requirements. I mean, how does this translate to them? What kind of uh, argument uh, do, you, do you give them to say, look, you, you've got to put this at the top of your list? Well, for one thing, patient experience is 25% of your value-based purchasing score. Um, and, you know, the we know that patients who perceive a reliably, we have the data, patients who perceive a reliably better experience have a lower readmission rate, they have a lower length of stay, they have higher safety scores and they have lower hospital acquired conditions like bloodstream infections. And the point is, again, this is not about being nice. This is about everything we do. It's clinical, it's operational, it's cultural, it's behavioral. It is everything we do. And when you think about 
patient experience that way and not about patient satisfaction, not about being nice or, or, or be making people happy, that changes the conversation. And in truth, because it, it encompasses all of those things, it should be the first thing you talk about at a board meeting, even over the finances. It should be talked about at a board meeting because that it, it, it truly is everything we do in healthcare. And if we aren't paying attention to the patient experience, the bottom line will never be what you want it to be. Yeah, I think you're making a really critical point here, which is that I have a feeling that many people, whether it be the the board members or senior leaders or or managers, perceive uh, patient uh, experience scores to be uh, about this sort of niceness factor, um, as opposed to the, the way you you know made it so clear both in your book and in this discussion that this is this is not what we're talking about. We are talking about people who are seriously suffering, and that suffering has implications that can be measured uh, not just in the experience scores, but also as you just pointed out in actual clinical quality, safety issues like readmissions, length of stay, clinical outcomes. These are all connected, as you pointed. I mean, it really, it struck me. They are absolutely, it's, they're all integral. You, you can't tease them out. You can't separate them. And so rather than see the patient engagement scores as just another set of metrics that you have to hit, understanding this, this, this is really the top line. This is what you have to start looking at and look at first and prioritize so that you can you can really work on the other things as well. Um, uh, so it, it really is. I mean, again, I, I really appreciate what you're saying and the point you're trying to make. And I, I think that it, for me, at least, I think you have some work cut out for yourself and for your organization in terms of making this point really understood, really re- reframing and redefining this and reorienting people's thinking. And I'm talking about people as in you know, leaders across the country to understand it this way. Cause I, I, I think if you can do that, um, you know, people will, will, will want to actually uh, work on this compassionate connected care approach. Thank um, you. <laughs> does that, yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm, <laughs> I, I take every opportunity to talk about it because it is so important. And you know, the, the thing is when you talk to people who take care of patients every day, and you say, you know what? This is not about being at the 90th percentile. This is about doing the right thing. It completely changes the conversation. When you help people understand that, that, that these metrics should not be used as a hammer. These metrics, you know, nobody went to, to school to be at the 90th percentile. And nobody majored in an A. We went to school to be doctors and nurses and therapists and business people. And we wanted to make an A because it told us the progress we were making toward our goal. But it wasn't the, the, the A was not the ultimate goal. The 90th percentile should not be the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal should be to optimize the experience of our patients and the people who take care of them. And when we do that, the scores come as a natural consequence. And when the scores come, so does the reimbursement. 
That's a great way to look at it. Let me, I, we're, we're getting close to an hour here. And so I, I've got a couple of questions I really want to ask you. Um, this is personal for you as well as professional. And again, very much connected. Why did you write this book? I mean, writing a book is a tall order. Um, and I know you, you spent quite a bit of time and, and energy and, and emotion and uh, intellectual capital. What's your purpose and your hope? I wanted to write this book because I felt like we needed to help people understand that this was not about a score. So every chapter starts and ends with a story that helps to, to, to bind us to the people, to the experience. And oh, by the way, it matters. It, from a from a, a measurement perspective, from a reimbursement perspective, but that's not the the end all be all. The end all be all is the people. And what really made me want to write this book is is not only my own experience as a patient, but I wanted to tell Aaron's story. And it, you know, Aaron today, three years out, we call this his alive day. Three years out, Aaron is now basically independent. Aaron can drive. Aaron can have a conversation. He has a lot of cognitive and speech issues and he'll, he'll never be able to work again. And he'll have, he'll have issues his entire life, but he can argue with his wife and he can play with his children. And it, you know, he is where he is. And I am where I am cancer free because of the grace of God, but also because of every single person who took care of us. And, and people don't recognize the impact that they have on the lives of the people who come to them for care. You know, they, they, they'll see us in the grocery store and, and we might recognize them, but our patients will remember everything forever. You know, Maya Angelou wrote that quote. Everybody knows it. You know, people will forget what you said and they'll forget what you did, but they'll always remember what the way you made them feel. And that's wrong because with what we do in healthcare, they will remember everything we said and everything we did. And they will always remember how we made them feel. What we do is so important. And so that's why I wanted to write the book. I wanted to remind people what it felt like to be a patient and the family member of a critically ill patient and a nurse and an administrator and a team member. I, I, so hopefully that's what came across. Yeah, that's really helpful. You know, I, I, I have to say when I was uh, looking at your bio and, and um, kind of thinking about your career, what, what impressed me most was you know, just your energy and, and how much you've accomplished and how much you do. And I, I think now after talking to you, what impresses me most is um, the humanistic mission that you're on and um, and what you're trying to accomplish in this world. So, um, you know, I think what we will remember about Christy Dempsey is exactly what you just talked about, which is making a difference for people in terms of alleviating their suffering in some of the most difficult and challenging moments of their lives. So, um so again, I just want to thank you sincerely for what you're doing and uh, who you are and what you're, what you're bringing and sharing with us. Um, what, what key takeaway or call to action do you have for folks who are listening to this? Is there 
something that you want to say, something you want people to remember, um, something you want people to do. What, what, is there anything that comes to mind? It is, it is about the reduction of suffering of everybody through compassionate, connected care. That's it. Fair enough. And, um, one last question I like to ask, uh, guests on the show questions about their own life and what, um, what was the best piece of advice you were ever given? Hmm. To not be afraid to take a risk, to make sure that you step out of your comfort zone because you can make such a difference. I think I may have given you a different quote at some point, but that's the one that comes to mind right now. What, why is that? Why was that the best piece of advice? What, what, what did, did you follow that or not follow that made you think that, wow, that was a really good thing? Oh, yeah, I definitely followed it or I wouldn't be here. Um, it, you know, I, I, I stepped away from a 23-year career in the hospital uh, to work for a startup company uh, working with patient flow. And uh, that was scary and it was risky. And, but I mean, it's, it turned out pretty good. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I turned down a full ride scholarship in journalism after high school, uh, to stay with my boyfriend. Uh, and you know, that was a risk. Uh, but you know, we've been married 35 years now. So, um, those, those things made me who I am today and that stepping out and taking a risk um, has actually impacted an awful lot of people. Uh, so uh, I think it's just important that we, we get safe and, and we get in our comfort zone and we're afraid to step out of it. But there are so many things that we can do in this world to help other people. Um, and stepping out of your comfort zone and taking a risk is the first step. Wow. I, I am so glad I asked you that question. That was really <laughs> wonderful. Thank you for, for that. Um, so we're, we're going to wrap it up. I, I want to thank you so much, Christy, for being a part of creating a new healthcare and, and really bringing us, uh, you know, your conviction and your boldness. Um, and, um, you know, I think a real fresh and new understanding of, of the issue of patient engagement and this uh, issue of patient suffering and caregiver suffering. I, I think it's so important and you've really uh, definitely shaped or reshaped my understanding. And I'm hoping that, uh, that this message gets out to uh, a lot of leaders in hospitals so that they can uh, learn from you and, and make some significant changes to improve patient care. I do want to thank our listeners because uh, you're out there doing the hard work each and every day, taking care of patients uh, or supporting those who take care of patients or trying to contribute to the healthcare system. Then I, I hope you take it to heart. Um, and then one final call to action. Um, uh, you've been listening to this podcast, Creating a New Healthcare. I would greatly appreciate your taking the time to uh, sub subscribe to the podcast so you get the new episodes as they come out, to rate uh, and comment on the podcast, and to uh, share it with friends and colleagues that you think would benefit uh, from it. So, uh, and, and as always, I am so appreciative of comments. Um, if you have suggestions of uh, people you think I should interview, please email me at znewworth at gmail.com. So uh, thank you again, and until uh, next time, be well. <laughs>